Welcome to the Witness and Persecution Podcast with Nick and Ruth Ripkin, where we equip you with biblical principles and truths and practices learned from believers in persecution to help you cross the street and cross the ocean with the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Anthony Ball, and Nick is joining me today. It is a beautiful spring day here uh, where I am. I don't know about you, but uh, how's your weather over there? It uh, When I left early this morning to go get a shot in my knee and go to physical therapy, it was 20 degrees, and now it's 50. <laughs> We've been about 30 degrees warmer than that here. <laughs> well, Wow. We're, we've been uh, been planting and gardening and putting things in planters, in-ground planters, above-ground planters, and uh, we may just have a little bit of crop to send up to you uh, when it produces in a couple months. Well, good. I put stuff out when this happened last year, and I lost all of my plants that I'd kept alive all winter because a late frost came, oh, and they no. say here in this part of Kentucky, uh, put your plants in the ground or whatever at derby day oh Mm -hmm. i didn't know that yeah that's well the things that you and i don't know will feel encyclopedias (laughs) and then some volumes of encyclopedias yeah so some of the things (laughs) we we think we know aren't in those cycle are not there (laughs) exactly exactly well let's talk about some things that we do know especially for you nick um we have uh, gotten some really, really great feedback over these last few weeks looking at uh, the lies that Satan tells the church. And, and again, uh, the reason we're doing this is not just because they're lies that Satan tells the church, but they're lies that the church often believes. And they're lies that, that we often believe um, as followers of Jesus. And so I'm going to recap the, the last few lies that we've discussed because I think the lie that we're going to uh, work through today. I think it hits home for a lot of people. And the the longer we are Christians, the the older we get, uh, the bigger our families become, this becomes a serious, real issue in the church. And so uh, it, it's going to be, I think it's hard. It's going to be challenging and convicting. But let me kind of backtrack the last few weeks. Uh, the very beginning of this, the lie number one that we looked at was that the Bible is an old book. It's a record of what God used to do. Um, the Bible is in past tense, and God is a past tense God. It's a, a lie that many in the church have believed. The second lie is that God only does miracles overseas. He doesn't do anything here anymore. But what we discussed and looked at uh, during that time was that believers in persecution, they look at us and they they say, look how God has, has blessed you. Um, look at your ability to worship and to witness. And that's a miracle every week and every day that we get to experience since a lie that we we believe that God is not doing the miraculous amongst us uh, in these days in the West. And then the third lie that we looked at is that uh, there's a call to missions and not really there's a command. Jesus has commanded us um, to go. And sometimes we can find exemptions uh, in a call rather than a command. And then the most recent lie that we looked at uh, is a very powerful lie, and I think we hear that a lot in the States, especially, is that we need to reach our own country first. The need is too great in our community. The need is too great in our own area, so we can't go overseas because we've got to focus on the needs that are around us. Of course, the the issue with that, as you talked about, Nick, uh, which is really challenging and convicting for me and those around me, is uh, we say the great, the need is too great, and so we can't go overseas, and yet how many of us are actually even meeting the spiritual need in our own Jerusalem in Judea? Um, and I, I thought that was a very, very powerful episode because talking about Judea, talking about going to that next race of people, we often are not doing that. And uh, we're believing that lie that the need is too great. And yet we're also oftentimes not doing anything about that need. So, Let's move into this next one. And, and again, I think it's going to be very powerful. Um, it's going to hit very close to home. But the lie that we're going to discuss today, a lie of Satan that the church often believes, and I think this is going to start hitting home to those who are um, you got kids in the home or you got kids growing up in the home, maybe even got grandkids 
uh, that you're close to. The lie of Satan is that serving God at my church exempts my children from serving on the mission field. Serving God at my church exempts my children uh, from serving on the mission field. Nick, take it away because that uh, you have you've experienced with kids and grandkids. And what what do we what do we need to teach the church and believers today about this lie? Well, I think it strikes at the very root of uh, is Jesus worth it? Uh, mm. Is his command to be obeyed? And are, are there parts of my life that I can subtract from his command? I mean, I mean I've heard, I have heard uh, way too many times older ladies saying that included their children and grandchildren, uh, 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 couples who raid their, raise their children uh, to love Jesus. And when they love Jesus enough to go overseas, I mean, they just fell apart, and, and they'll even say, I have made a bargain with God. If I really work hard in my church, uh, especially in the missions department, then God will not call my children, and the way they express that is that God has promised me to keep his hands off my kids. Mm. And, and, and and my reply is, God you man, you manufactured that conversation because there's there's there there there's there's no way that God would would make a such a a a, a bargain, and mm. and what they say to me also is that God God is a God of love, and He would not want me to be without my children and without watching my gr- grandchildren uh, grow up. And I can tell you, uh, this is across the board. The toughest man I ever met. Now, Anthony, it's going to take a few minutes, but uh, as I got closer and, and going through the Muslim world uh, uh, to interview believers there, you can imagine a lot of places they were scattered. They were alone and afraid. They're on the run. Their lives are at risk. Mm. And so you just don't pick up and, 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 and publish in the local paper you'd like to meet with uh, Muslims who have come to Jesus. And so as I got into further into the Muslim world, other than Somalia, many, many people said, you need to meet this guy from Central Asia. And I'd go somewhere else. Uh, you need to meet this guy from Central Asia. And everywhere I'd ask him, I said, well, put me in touch with him. Well, we don't know. Most of them say, we don't know his name. We don't know where he lives. I said, then how am I going to get in touch with him? And <laughs> they just kept saying that over a number of years. And then one day I got a phone call. And it was wow. this guy from Central Asia. Now, here's how these interviews go. This is this is a little bit on the uh, extreme is the wrong way, but but you just had more layers than most. Uh, mm-hmm. He calls me and he says, "Fly uh, to this country." So I flew to that country. He gave me a number to call when I got to that country, and he had me call to a a, a, a regional city. So I fly to the regional city and, and he gives me a number and has me fly to a smaller city, still a city. And mm. I fly to that city. Now he's, I, I know what's going on. He's got people everywhere along that chain watching me, seeing if anybody's following me that shouldn't be. And, and when I finally got to the city that he had traveled across borders to go to also, he said, get a taxi and tell that taxi to drop you and he gave me the name of a store or an area of that city. And he said, and when you, when you get there, get out of the taxi, pay him and get out. And I, I got out and I called another number. And he said, look to your left. You see that seven-story building? Yes. And I had something on top of it. I don't remember what. He said, go in that building, come to the sixth floor, open the door. And he told me a certain number on the door. Open the door. There's going to be a light bulb hanging from the ceiling. You take one step into the room with that light bulb in your face and shut the door and don't try to find, don't, don't ask my name, don't even see me. And I did all of that. They get to set the parameters. Praise mm-hmm. God. In 600 interviews, we've never gotten word that someone had bad things happen to them. 
because we interviewed 600 people in 72 countries. That's not a small mm. miracle. I, I can give you other right. examples when that wasn't true. And, uh, and so we talked for six hours with my face, uh, you know, in that light bulb. I could tell that there was like a six or seven foot artificial potted plant in the back of that small room. And he's in, he's back there. I can see a shadow. I can hear a voice uh, there with the light in my eyes. So he, he tells me how when the last country had invaded his space, his Muslim country, uh, how he led a squad uh, of 15 freedom fighters, Muji, I forget how you call that word, but uh, uh, he, he had, he led a, a squad of 15 and, and he told me all about it. He said, and he said, he said, Nick, I took great joy when I could capture one of them alive and we would see how long we could torture them and, and, and literally take the skin, cut the skin from their body and see how mm. bad we could make them scream and torture them. Uh, uh, and how many days we could keep them alive before they died. And he mm. said, and I, and I was just so, nauseated almost i said how many people have you killed and he said i stopped counting at around 100 hmm. and that didn't count the others and the others that we shot from a distance or the others that we killed very quickly in ambush and and uh but these were the ones that he he you know saw his face he saw their face and and they hmm. he watched they even other, some of them had to watch him kill some of their uh, fellow uh, 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 soldiers from that outside country, knowing that the same thing was going to happen to them. Mm. And he said, then I, I began to dream. And, it, and at night, uh, there was blood on my hands. And, and, and I would see the blood on my hands. And he said, in succeeding nights uh, for weeks, the blood got more and more prevalent to it's running down my arms, dripping off my elbows. And he said, I knew. I knew in that dream, uh, this is the blood of all those men that I'd killed. Mm. And, and he said, I, I knew I was going hopelessly insane when I not only saw the blood in my dreams, I began to see it in the daytime. Nobody else wow. could see it. You know, my wife didn't know what was going on with me. I, I couldn't tell her. But he said, I'd scrub with all this kind of soap. I'd rub sand until it, my arms actually went raw. I, I did everything I could, use bleach, mm. and nothing would take the blood off. And so um, I'm dreaming about it at night. I'm seeing it in the daytime. I know I'm soon to go hopelessly insane. And then one night the dream changed again. And there stood a man clothed in white. Mm. And he said, my name is Jesus, the Messiah in my language. And he had scars in his head and scars in his hands and his feet and scars in one of his side said, I'm Jesus, Messiah, and I have come to take the blood away from you and take it on myself. But find me and I'll take the blood away. And his dream ends and he wakes up. And that begins a three-year pilgrimage in his country and two other countries looking for folks like you and me to get a story here or a story there. And all this time he's dreaming of this blood and it's on his hands, dripping off his elbows. He's looking for us because in those years when Ruth and I started working with Somalis, there was one faith-based worker for every 1.5 million Muslims. Today, I understand, oh, it's dropped to uh, manageable numbers like 750,000. Wow. That's how little we still mm. go uh, in, into that world and, and to those people. And, and, and maybe some other time we'll talk about why they're so mad. But, right. uh, uh, but, but anyway, he went, he, he said, I'd get a story here and I'd get a story there and I'd get somebody in a taxi and. And he said, it was a really, really great day when I, I saw the Jesus film in a language that I understood. And he said, mm -hmm. after three years of looking and looking and looking, he said, I found 
uh, enough of the stories that I believed and, and, and had my sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. And I, mm. I, I, I saw him take the blood from me and take it into himself and, and the blood was gone. Wow. And he had, he doesn't know there's another believer in the world except the few that he's re met randomly. Uh, uh, he led his wife mm. uh, to, to Christ. His children are being raised in Christ. And uh, he immediately begins traveling, smuggling Bibles out of one country through the mountain passes of his country and uh, walking. He, he, he does this for months at a time. Uh, he's got scars on his hands. He's got scars all over his body from fighting scars on his feet. And he's got a lot of scars on his heart. And he imagine. just looked and looked and looked until he found Jesus. And he's telling me all the things that he had done and experienced over these now six years uh, since he had met Jesus and all that he was doing. And then it came the day that he was going through one of those mountain passes that the British left, I think, 10,000 bodies frozen mm. in those mountain passes in, in a war back in the 1800s. And this wow. has been the death for Europeans for a long, long time. And he said, I just began uh, to, to, to make Jesus known, to carry Bibles to those who could read. And I walked through one of those mountain passes and, and I just had a feeling someone was watching me and I walked, walked around a corner of a ravine and I was surrounded by the 15 men I used to lead. And mm. they'd been, they'd been looking for me. And he said, they wow. immediately threw me on the ground, began to beat me with their rifle butts, cracking my ankles, mm. my elbows, uh, uh, beating me with the, uh, about the head and the face and, 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 and unknown to anyone in the world except to God among those 15 men was another follower of Jesus. And wow. he took his life in his mm. own hands and he went to the current leader uh, that always hated this guy because he always thought he should have been the leader and, mm. and, and, and said, we're being foolish. You're going to kill him really quickly. And we're not going to know where all the other traitors to Islam live and we can roll up his whole network. If you'll just let me take him over here to this small town where there's a medical doctor and a little clinic and I'll patch him up and get him healthy enough. And then when you finish your patrol, you come back by here and, and let's be smart about this. Let's take him apart little by little by little so we can find out everybody that he knows that is also mm. a traitor to Islam and those who are interested in it. And they said, after some time, they thought that was a really good idea. So they provided a donkey and they tied him on the donkey because he was so beat up. He couldn't uh, stay on by himself. And they went on mm. their patrol and this believer took this brother uh, to the nearest town and patched him up and put him back on that donkey and smuggled him through another mountain pass in the next country to save his life. Wow. Now that's his story. Now I, I meet him uh, and, and he's telling me all this stuff for six hours. And it's just, it's like the apostle Paul plus on steroids. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't holding the cloaks as Stephen uh, was being stoned. He had gathered the rocks and he, he was part of the stoning of Stephen and, 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 mm -hmm. and throwing rocks on him after he was dead and, 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 and going back and telling his family what had happened to him just to rub, you know, more hatred in. And, and this mm -hmm. guy, and, and, he, and you know, Anthony, by then, Ruth and I have done about 400 plus of these 600 plus interviews, and I can huh. hear what they weren't saying. And early on of his Christian story, he told me about uh, leading his wife uh, to Christ, how his kids were in the process of following Christ, because I've only seen three people baptized who were Muslims under 18 years of age when Muslims biblically baptize their own people. 
and two of mm. them were 17. One of them were 16. They were baptized by their father as second generation believers in that household and were good to go. Right. Mm. And, and anyway, don't get me started on a, adult and children <laughs> baptism. But maybe, we'll maybe another future episode. Yeah. Or yeah. Maybe when I'm ready to really retire. And, uh, <laughs> And, and, and so I, I, I can hear, I said, you know, brother, you have changed my life. And he had, I've never mm. met anybody as tough as you. Uh, uh, it's just an unbelievable story of what Jesus does to bring somebody to himself. And, and the, your conversion story is just, uh, uh, it's just God breathed. And, and I said, but you told me about your wife and kids and their spiritual journey, and then in the next six hours or in the four hours or whatever you talked about your Christian life, they don't ever show up again. And I said, hmm. I just, since I can't, you know, it, it was obvious you didn't want me to go where you lived, and I can't bring your family into this conversation. I said, uh, uh, how do they, how do they, how have you integrated them into your ministry? How do they serve? Uh, how, how do they follow Jesus? And I'm telling you, if you can say wet your pants on a podcast that is Christian, that totally. my, that's my next experience because he jumped out. <laughs> he's six foot away or so, and he jumps out from behind that potted plant, and he jumps right in front of me, and he grabs me by my shoulders and begins to shake me. And he's right in my face, and he and he and I can't hardly understanding. But finally, I can hear him say, "How can God ask it? How can God ask it? I've given him mm -hmm. everything." And he says, "When I go to bed at night, the one thing that I have nightmares about, and that I fear the most, is that somehow he will ask of my wife and my children what he's asked of me. How can God ask it?" Now, I wonder how Christians would answer that. The ones that don't even want their kids to go in the mission field. Right. We're, not, we're, we're talking about another whole level of involving your wife and, and your children. And, you know, Anthony, it hadn't been that many months since our son had died uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. And, and we talk about mm. that pretty easily. But there's a lot of things I don't tell people. I just don't. They, yeah, they, of course. They, they, uh, I had a lot of trouble telling my wife what happened on the journey to the hospital. And, and mm -hmm. just things are so painful. Uh, and, and, and so uh, uh, he, I, I said to him, how are, are, are they involved in, in your ministry? And he, he screamed at me and, and said, uh, uh, you know, how can God ask it? And I told him our son's story. Uh, and, and, and I told him things that I hadn't really told anybody, but my wife and our boys, because uh, they had the right to know. And, 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 and I held that very close in a very tender place. And, and I told him everything that had happened uh, surrounding uh, his death and how hard it was to take our youngest and go back to the mission field mm. and go to, you know, hard places. And, and, uh, and, and he put his arms around me and began to weep. Mm. And he didn't, you could tell he wasn't used to crying because he didn't do it very well, <laughs> but he sobbed for wow. a short period of time and he wiped uh, his eyes uh, off and wipe those unfamiliar tears away uh, from his eyes. And he, he, he said, I, I, I'm going home. I'm going home and I'm going to go get my wife and children because what I asked him, I need to be clear about this. What I asked him is what we had asked our children and what Ruth and I had decided for ourselves when we started the Somali ministry and we found out how hard it was. And, and, mm. and I, I, I said, is Jesus worth, as, as fathers and husbands, is Jesus worth our lives? And biblically, is he worth uh, the life of our spouses? 
and is mm-hmm. uh, he worth the life of our children? Because wow. there's nowhere in the Bible you can separate your home uh, from Herod. And when Herod decides to go down to Bethlehem and kill all the boys under three years of age, you can get between the spears and the clubs uh, of the Romans and be killed and leave your wife and living children destitute. Or you are going to be held often by the soldiers. So they make you watch them as they kill your children that are three years Mm -hmm. of age and and, and under. And, and, And I said, that's the kind of world he lives in. And, and, and right. he knew that, and, and and we knew that biblically, and we talked about that, and and we just talked about whether Jesus is worth our lives, and and how we can't decide as men uh, to take the suffering on ourselves. Evil gets to decide that. Mm-hmm. We don't, and oftentimes, well, let's just leave that for another time. But 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 mm-hmm. but I ask him: Is Jesus worth? Our lives, the lives of our wives, and the lives of our children, is he worth it? And, and he wiped the tears from his eyes, and he said, I'm going to go get my wife and children and find appropriate ways to integrate them uh, into the lives, first of all, of the believing families, and then in the lives right. of the non-believing families. And I remember his words. He said, I have no right. I have no right to cheat my wife and children out of the joy of suffering for Jesus. Wow. That's powerful. It almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And there's yeah. probably there's probably nothing more difficult in the Christian world than releasing our lives in the hands of God, and that is releasing the lives of our loved ones too. And and our listeners need to really go to the bank on this because they this is not going to be a big switch for them, but it's going to be a big switch sending those you love to the mission fields of the world is much mm. harder than going. I would rather go to Mogadishu and to hard places like Afghanistan and to the war zones of this world a thousand times than to stay in that safe place and have my wife and children go there. Right. Our oldest son, long before he graduated from high school, he's the one that works for NASA, astrophysicist, plans ahead. <laughs> he's like his mama. And he knew exactly what he wanted, a carved chest, hand-carved chest from Mombasa. That's what he wanted for graduation uh, from high school there in Kenya. So we could prepare and do that for six months ahead. Our youngest son is like me. And he lives in the moment. Planning is not a big thing, uh, <laughs> usually for us. And 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 though I got better at it, I, I, I'd buy <laughs> gifts for my wife on most of these trips where I did interviews. I'd buy for uh, you know for anniversaries and birthdays and special days, and I would hide them in whatever apartment or house we lived in. Then I forget where I hide them, and so when we moved. <laughs> My wife would find all these gifts that I didn't know where they were so I could give them to her. That, that's, that's what that, happened when you planned. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what happened when I planned. And, and, and so, uh, uh, you, you know, what I found uh, with our son, our youngest, finally, uh, we're going to leave Kenya. Uh, we just buried his brother a month or so before, and, and, and our oldest is getting ready to graduate, and I'm going to do the graduation speech. For the class that buried our son, wow. and, and and it's it's the senior class, and our our son was a sophomore. Oh, what a sweetheart he was! Small Christian, uh, a school there in Nairobi. Every Valentine's Day, our son that died would give every girl in high school a long stem rose. Mm. Oh, wow. he was a lover. Never, <laughs> never went to bed without telling his mother that he loved him, her, loved her. And we're standing mm. maybe half of a football field from his grave. And I just said to Sabu, that's his African name. I said, Sabu. And he's standing there with a girlfriend and some other friends. I said, you're going to have to let me know now uh, before we leave Africa 
what you want for graduation. No, I've got that wrong. Uh, it's when we went back to Kenya and he was about right, to graduate right. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and our oldest son was in the States, didn't make it back. And, and we're standing near his brother's grave. And I asked him, you're about to graduate in a couple of months. You've got to let me know what you want for graduation. And he looked at me, he said, dad, what I want for graduation is I want you to, uh, change your mind. And I want to start going into Somalia and doing projects with you in Somalia. Wow. My wife began to sob. Mm, and I can there imagine. were tears in my eyes. And half of me, half of me was so proud that my 18-year-old mm. son, what he wanted for graduation from high school, I wonder how many high school graduates from churches would even be thinking that way in the <laughs> right. States. And, right. And, and, and and he's I'm saying to God, half of me is so proud that my son wants to do this. And the other half is saying, God, I've done this for our family for seven mm. years. Now, keep your hands off my son. And I'm right. having that internal battle right there. And my wife is crying and I look at her and she nods uh, her head. Uh, yes. And I said, son. You know, I was just kicked out and your mother and I can't get back in there right now. But I promise you, uh, we'll go ahead and get you some kind of graduation gift. But the moment that I can get back in Somalia, I'm not going to go without you. I will mm. not go uh, without you. And, 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 and so the, the part of me that was in Christ won. But for a flicker, I really had that very uh, deep uh, emotion. And, and people had praised us. There's articles written about us. And uh, people have, mm. have, have consumed our books and, and the movie. Uh, uh, but they don't understand that going is a lot easier than sending. I'd rather go right. to Mogadishu a thousand times than see my wife or my kids go there one time. It's just it's just the way God has made our tender hearts. And and, and I understand where church people are coming from. If they understand the responsibility of the sender, it will transform their church or they'll stop sending. And most of our churches have chosen the second piece. They have stopped sending because they know how hard it is. I've never had. I've never had a lost family call their kids, married, single, short-term career, call them, begging them to come home. I've had a dozen or more that I know of, and there's going to be a lot more that never told me, who are from Christian families, raised in the church, parents served in the church, that they dread it, they dread it, Sunday night, because Sunday night is when their parents called them long before Facebook and the Internet, and all, you know, where you could get on all these kind of programs and see people. Right. But they dreaded Sunday night because the call would come and most of the call would be you need to be obedient. God has told you to be obedient to your parents. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's with promise. You need to come home because we're telling you to come home. But that's not the issue. The issue is not the commandments of God. The issue is the parents' disobedient heart. Mm. And, and I've come to the States for many reasons. And for those times, I have done side trips to meet with parents that are calling their children, career, married, single, working with us on our teams, calling them, begging them to come home. I've never had wow. a lost family come and fly to Africa to talk their kids into coming home, but I've had a Christian family do that. Mm. And what I do is when I come home, I'll gather those fathers and mothers, and sometimes it's a blended family, so there'll be stepfathers and stepmothers in there, and talk to them what they're doing to their kids and how this is. Uh, uh, and I can say to them, I can tell 
Ruth and I, within a week or so, if we're with them quite a bit, within a week or two, we can tell new people that come to the mission field whether they've been blessed by their family to come or whether they've not been blessed by their family to come. And one of the horrible truths that your listeners are going to struggle with is that people who are not Christian, pagan people, non-believers, bless their children to work overseas for the kingdom of God a lot easier, a lot quicker than Christian people do. And I always struggled with why is that true? And I didn't know why that was true. Somalia was so bad. After six or seven months, Ruth and I left the boys with some dear friends there to stay in school. And we flew back to America and we went to our seminaries. We went to our churches. We went to organizations that you listeners will know that report on persecution. That's their whole, uh, that's what they do. Uh, We went to uh, 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 the U.S. government. We went to the committee on, on, on human and civil rights and persecution. We, and, and, and as far as witness and church planning, we could find no help. We could mm-hmm. find no help, none. Jesus said, be sheep among wolves. All we could find again was how to be sheep among sheep. And uh, I, mm-hmm. uh, we took part of that time, of course. And Ruth went to uh, her part of Kentucky to see her mom and dad. And I went, my mom had been dead. Uh, she died four months after we went to the mission field at 51 years of age. So wow. we, our mom, my mom died very, very early, never, uh, barely met her grandchildren. And, uh, mm. and, and, uh, and, and I went to see my dad and he took me to the only restaurant in my little 1400 county seat town. And we walked in there and people still smoking in the restaurant and, and you know, you're parting, parting the smoke, clouds of smoke. But as I walked through the front of the restaurant, these old men began to get up out of their chairs and pat me on the back, hug me, and say, way to go, son. We're proud of you, boy. We knew you had it in it. Way, way to do what nobody else can do. And, and they're patting hmm. me on the back. And, and, they're, and, and, and the lady escorted escorted my daddy and I back into the ballroom. It's not that. It's just a little room where the rotary, <laughs> rotary club meets. And only the Rotary <laughs> Club can go back there. And the waitress came back and brought me real silverware and, and porcelain <laughs> plate. Everybody else has the paper and the plastic stuff. And, and, and she just brought me the best that she had on the menu and patted me and told me how proud she was of me. And I said, Dad, what's going on? He said, hmm. I, I told him what you've done. I said, Dad, what did you tell them? He said, I told him how you brought those that 30,000 troops into Somalia. Mm. I said, you've told them what? He said, I told them how uh, you, you brought, you made the U.S. government bring 30,000 troops from all over the world to save them people. And I said, Dad, I didn't do this. He said, were you there first? I said, yeah. He said, did you give some interviews and write some articles? I said, a few times. He said, yeah. You you shamed the U.S. government so bad that they had to do something. They were forced to do something. Hmm. Now, here's here's the the point I want to make. Those outside the kingdom of God who are our parents will make up an unbelievable otherworldly story of why their children have gone to do what they're doing uh, and, and they have the freedom to make up anything they want to, and they do it all the time. But church people don't have that. They know mm. there's one reason and one reason alone. We go to the mission field, and that is for who Jesus is and who he wants to be in the nations and how he's commanded us to go to the nations. And if Jesus is not worth those church members, parents, lives, and grandparents' lives and the lives of their children and grandchildren, then they're not going to send. Mm. So, so what I've learned to ask them, is Jesus worth it? And the answer is no. The mm. answer 
The answer is no, because they said, we've given our whole lives to God and to our church, and now you want us to let him steal our children and, 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 and not watch our grandchildren grow up? Uh, uh, how can a God of love want something like that? And it made me think, which is harder, dying on a cross or sending your only begotten son to die on a cross. In the nature mm. of God, you have both of those things. You have the father that sins, and you have the son that dies. And, and so you have both of those that, that, that is modeled uh, for us. And yet it mm. is so hard for us to do. And the way that we talk about missions and missionaries, that's the top of the ladder. And what we're sending, saying to churches, no. I, uh, after we got into Somalia, Ruth and I became coaches. We became supervisors. We began sending people throughout Somalia, and we no longer took the lead. We had people staying in there full-time, 24-7, while I would come in and out because our children uh, and wife was in Nairobi, and sometimes my wife would go in. All of these others were too young to have children or their children are grown or, or they're single, but America idolizes, uh, takes off the altar. It, it, it's children and bargaining with God, holding back our children so that they may experience the good life, the happy life. The, the American dream is to, is to believe that ultimately the church is going to deny the nations their best and their brightest. And I've heard it said in seminary chapel that the day has to come when we send our best to the mission field, not those who can't pastor a church in America. Hmm. My goodness. Wow. My goodness. I was um, at a, the final four the last time the University of Kentucky won the NCAA. <laughs> and that our agent called us and said, if you'll come to the States a week early, because we had some speaking engagements and teaching engagements, if you come a week early, I'll take you to the, uh, you and your wife and one guest, pay for the hotel, food, everything, and give you good seats. Uh, you can go to all the practices of all the teams in the NCAA tournament. And, and, and certainly there for the final four. And what a great week it was. What a mm. great week it was. And, and even it, it came to where the sponsor, what they have was called the nation, the, the nation of co coaches for the NCAA. They, they would gather all the Christian coaches, every NCAA mm. teacher, and they would have all this preaching and sharing of testimonies and some guys, some ESPN that are strong believers uh, would set up a, like a network stage and bring the Christian coaches up there and interview them just like they were on CNN. And those coaches hmm. presented Ruth and I with a basketball from the University of Kentucky signed by Coach Calipari and all of those players that were to win the NCAA that year. So there's a lot of wow. things going on. And so we're setting in a fairly empty gym, watching the practice of one of the teams. I think it was UK. And there was a family from Kentucky sitting in front of us. And we just got to talking. And, and, and we told them who we were and what we have done with our lives and why we were home. And they said, well, we're, back. we're, we're members of a, our, the same denomination, and we live in this community. And, and, and the girl said, by, by the way, I graduate in May. And I'm now filling out a, an application to serve overseas for two years. And I said, that's great. It's, it, what a God-ordained time to meet you. And we talked for a while, and she got up and said, well, I, I need something to drink. Does anybody need anything? And I'm going to get some food. And she left, and I just felt impressed to ask her mom and dad. I said, so you raised your daughter in church, they said, yes, we, her whole life. I said, then it's safe for me to assume 
that you're going to bless her to go overseas for two years. And her father got angry as he could be. And he said in a very harsh voice, I will never bless my daughter to go uh, overseas to that place and name the place. And her mother wow. said, and the mother said, I don't think I can bless her. And so I said, so you're going to send your daughter whom you raised to be obedient to God and is trying to be obedient to God, top 2%. And now you're going to tell her not to be obedient to God. And, and, and it's not because she's afraid. It's because you're afraid. And so my wife began talking with the mother and I talked with the dad. I said, I said, dad, please, please don't send your daughter out unblessed. I said, Ruth and I can tell in a matter of weeks, if not days, those who come to the mission field blessed by their families and those who are not. And, 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 and it's a heavy burden to carry when you know that you mm. to do God's wishes, you had to go against the blessing of your parents that raised you to be uh, 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 obedient to God. And we talked for about an hour and that girl never came back. Somehow God kept <laughs> her away long enough. And we prayed with that couple in that Coliseum surrounded by other wow. basketball fanatics. And, 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 and Ruth just said, uh, how can we pray for you? And what are you going to do? And the mother said, I am going to bless my daughter to do what God's called her to do. How can I be, how can I be less mm. courageous than my daughter? And I looked at her father. He said, I have no idea how I'm going to find the strength, but I will not send my daughter to the mission field unblessed by her father. And, and we left mm. them after that game, after that practice, we left them and got a letter from them, how they blessed her to go to the mission field and, 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 and how that, what that did to their walk with Jesus. You know what I do to often, Anthony, when I run into that and I come back to the States and I have a meeting with the parents that are trying to beg their children to come home. And I said, so, so what is it? I said, so let me be straight. Uh, we're in Florida in one of these situations. And I'm with six set of parents, six parents, because there's a uh, stepfather, stepmothers, and, and, and they're just chewing me up down the other. And I'm telling them what a blessed child or a blessed couple that they've sent out to us. And I said, okay, okay. I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. So my brother-in-law lives in California and it's one of the most unchurched places in America, unlike here in the South. And he is looking for someone with the gift set of your your uh, uh, your your child, your your boy, uh, your son, and and your your daughter, and and they can be church planners and and really serve God in America, because that's what this has been about. Your children have to mm. come back to America, and so we'll let them carry out God's obedience. Now, Anthony, I know I'm setting them up. <laughs> but but I just want to make sure the whole thing's on the table. So we'll help them get a job, uh, a ministry in California where they can see lives change, where uh, there's very few churches out there. And they said, absolutely not. There are churches here in this community that need uh, staff members like them. I said, so now here's what's on the table. Unless they can drive from church to your home, for lunch meal after church, they are outside the will of God and your will. They said, now you understand. Mm. Now you finally understand. Now, I don't want to give a blanket indictment because it wouldn't be true. But I'm saying, I, I call pastors and say, we've got a problem. You've got leaders in your church You've got moms and dads that are trying to bring people off the mission field and they have real spiritual problem. And I need you to help me partner with that to get them to bless them on the mission field and release them. And, and I've never, I never gained a partner. 
Mm. I didn't gain a partner. And, and, and I, I just wonder uh, what we say to churches because it's heartfelt that the hardest job now that we've told you about Somalia and persecution and going to these 72 countries and you, you've heard all the stories and about the famines and the Civil War, I want to say to you, the hardest thing is not going. The hardest thing is for you to send. And if right. you will struggle with God's command to send and release people to go, that's the hardest task uh, in the world. And, 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 and sending will do one of two things for you. When you understand that the hardest task in the Christian life is sending, not going, you will send and it will transform your church body. Mm. Or you'll refuse to send and you will continue to spend 95% of your time and your resources on yourself and you'll leave 2.8 billion to 3 billion people without a verse of scripture, without a scriptural song, without a missionary, without a church. Mm. This lie is one of the most devastating lie that we have is that I, uh, you know, I have worked full time in my local church sacrificially. I have led and I've given. I've made a deal with God that if I would serve the church in as full time as I could, that he would keep his hands off my children and leave them here in America. This is a painful one. This, this mm. goes, this goes, this strikes deep in the hearts. And I, I know how hard it is. I, 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 we've had to release our kids uh, to take their gifts and go over there. And, 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 and we want them to have the, that fullness of God's blessing. Now it's not meant for everyone. It, it, it's not for every child. It's not for all grandparents. I mean, it, it's the same when grandparents come and serve, we get the same pushback from their children hmm. when, when the second career people come. And, and so we just got to recognize that God does not make these kinds of contracts that he exempts because of any service we offer him. It exempts those that we love from serving overseas in any capacity, whether it's a, a, a hard place, a, a fruitful place, a place where there's a lot of disease or little disease, a place that's uh, parametered by civil war and famine or parametered by peace and response. Uh, uh, sending is, is uh, something that parents push back on almost more than anything. So I just want to leave it there uh, and, and have a mm. struggle with it. Uh, what we churches say, how do we become mission-minded churches? And if I said it before, it really bears repeating. We say, well, you need to do two or three things. When you dedicate your children, you've got to talk to the parents first what you're going to do. But when you dedicate their children before God in the church, uh, do three things. Uh, give them a Bible, which you already do. Give them a passport application. This is a newborn mm. or young child. And give them a bank account, a savings account. Put a $150 to $300 in it. Have people add to it on birthdays, Christmases, special days. So when that child is 12, 13, 14 years of age, they have enough money to go on their first mission trip, trip hopefully with their family. And, 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 and you have that conversation with that family who's going to dedicate that children. You're going to say, as a church, we're going to do our best to make sure that your children cross the street with the gospel. And because the need is so great, that your children cross the oceans with the gospel. And if you're mm. not good with that, uh, this is not the church you need to join. I love that. Well, it's hard, Anthony. Uh, right. It's really hard. 
I've fallen in love with our grandson that we're helping raise now. We keep him five days a week if we're not traveling. He's 14 months mm -hmm. old. We've kept him since he's three months old. He's the only child, adult, puppy, dog, cat, any creature of God on earth <laughs> that wants me before my wife. So I know the <laughs> child has an emotional problem somewhere, but he will come <laughs> to me when I walk in the door. If Ruth's holding him, he'll cry until I take him. He holds his arms out to me. He wants me to read to him. Uh, he's my outdoor buddy. His mother thought that was hilarious until I walked into the house and he cried because he wanted to come to me from his mama. I don't take him from his mama. You know, I might do that with Aunt Ruth, but because we've worked that out and she's, I know she's not going to be threatened by it, but uh, you don't take a baby from his mama. And, and, and yet I, I can imagine putting that child on a plane and not see him in his adult years, except for some furloughs. I know how hard that would be, but I yeah. pray over him. We prayed over him before he was born. Uh, God help us with his parents for him to become and to go whatever it is you have for him. Mm, I love that. And I, I think so many people look at it as if we give our children to God to go overseas, then we get cheated out of time with our children. But how many times do we really look at it as if we keep them, we cheat the nations out of how God wants to use them uh, to reach people groups and to reach countries. That's powerful. And so we, there's a lot have, that goes into that. We have to acknowledge it's hard. The hardest, yeah, I, thing, absolutely. the hardest thing that a church does is sin. And inside of that is a microcosm. But the hardest thing to do within the church is for families to send their children and their grandchildren and their second career parents. Mm. It's hard. Absolutely. And I think uh, hopefully for our listeners, they, as they chew on this this week and, and in the future, I hope they see that it. It is hard, and we have a lot of grace to give to parents and grandparents and families and, and churches, uh, but we want them to be obedient, and we want them to see. I, I think why this is so helpful is because I don't really hear people talking about this. You know, we don't, we don't really hear churches talking about families and parents. How do we prepare you to prepare your children to, to serve and to go overseas? And how I don't think them. a lot of churches are— yeah, I don't think a lot of churches are having that conversation, how we bless them and send them out well. Uh, I, I hope that this kickstarts a lot of conversations in people's lives and in churches to start really having this conversation about how to bless children and, and families to go overseas and to be a part of God's work instead of trying to hold on to them. Uh, when we went to Ruth's parents to ask for their blessing, to be married. Ruth tells this story all the time. We walked in the living room. Mm. They knew what was coming. Uh, and when I, we sat down, uh, her, her father never looked at me, not one time. And I said <laughs> his name, uh, his surname, Mr. Uh, Reverend, and his surname, uh, I'd like to, to marry your daughter, and I'd like your blessing. He never looked at me. And he looked mm. at Ruth and said, Ruth, what about, and he worded it this way. I would word it somewhere a, a different way now. He said, what about your call to be a missionary? Because they were thinking that I was not in that world and, and mm. that I had not experienced that weeks after I became a Christian. First time I read the, the Great Commission, I was locked in. I was ready to go. Yeah. And, and she said, uh, Daddy, uh, uh, I know that I was going to go if no one was going to go with me, but I wanted to be married. And Nick knew he was going to go, whether anybody went with him or not, but he did not want to go by himself. And God has led us together. And the foundation of our marriage is our desire to go together overseas. And they looked, uh, her parents looked at each other and they said, Neil. And we knelt at her parents' feet, and they put mm. their hands on our head 
and they blessed us as we got ready to be married with the promise when the day was had come that we were prepared to go to the mission field. And every time we came mm-hmm. home, before we would ever go out, we knelt. We knelt at the feet of her parents, and they laid their hands on us, and they prayed over us, and they sent us, in Jesus' name, back to the mission field. Mm. And after Ruth's mother died, uh, her daddy called us. We were in Jordan. And he said, Ruth, it's time for you to come home. Hmm. I'm older. Uh, I've been without your mother. And she said, Daddy, uh, uh, my brother, your son is not that far away. He's a plane ride away. and, and, And my sister is 10 miles away. He said, you're the oldest. You were my little secretary. You and I worked together. We did things together. I need you to come home. And and mm-hmm. a few months after that, we came back to the States. We made a side trip to Kentucky. We sat with her dad, and he made this appeal. And I said to him, uh, Grandpa, we're not done. Uh, God hasn't released us, and we really do not want to go back unless uh, we just don't want to go back without your blessing. And he looked at us. And he began to weep, and he said, kneel. And for the <laughs> last time, we knelt at his feet, and he blessed us. Mm-hmm. And he got Alzheimer's and then dementia, and he did not know some of his own children and, 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 and the closest people around him. But when we would come into his presence and kneel at his feet, As we did over those 35 years, his eyes would be open, and he knew to call our names out and to pray for us. And even when we were retiring, coming home, he prayed that we might go back to the mission field because he thought he was still sending us. He couldn't remember hardly anything else but us Mm. kneeling in front of us, him, being blessed by him to be sent to the nations was on the hard drive in the deepest of places in his heart and his mind. Wow. That's incredible. And, and Nick, this isn't to say that everything has been easy. It's not to say that you all are perfect. It's not to say that the journey was easy or perfect, but I think looking at, you know, decades later where you are now, I think our listeners would look and say, the the role that blessing you all to to do what God had commanded you to do that plays a big part in you being able to stay for decades and to endure and be a part of God's mission for decades. I think I think uh, it's hard to overstate how important that it, maybe if you didn't even think about it until recently, I think it's hard to overstate how important that blessing was throughout the years for you to be able to stay and to go and succeed it was on the mission lifeline. field. I think that's a great, yeah, it was right. our anchor. It was our anchor. Uh, I, I don't, I, I would hope that we would do it. And we did do it after he died, but we sought out other people to bless us. Older people that mm. had mentored us. And we drove wherever we had to draw, drive because we did not want to go do this hard stuff without the blessing of God's people. And so Mm. imagine how we need to do this in all kinds of directions in our homes as we worship and in our churches, how we bless people and, 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 and a pastor going up to a young couple and saying, I don't know God's will for your life. Only you can know that. But as your pastor, as your youth director, As your worship director, I want you to know that if God was to define his command in your life to be in an overseas setting, I want you to know as a staff member of this church, as your Sunday school teacher, as your deacon, that that you have what it takes. You have Mm -hmm. what it takes to be a world changer, and I will bless you in whatever you do, but I would especially love to bless you to the nations. And whether that person goes or not, 
being blessed by that important person in their lives will transform them, especially mm. if they stay home. Right. Wow. There's a, there's a lot to chew on, uh, for sure. And I, th I think, um, the never ending uh, podcast. <laughs> we, I mean, we could go for hours if you wanted to, but I don't know if anybody would listen, no, but I, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we need to cut it off at this point, but, uh, I do want to remind our listeners that, um, if you are thinking about going overseas or if you have the desire to go overseas and you don't feel like you have that support structure, uh, whether it's immediate family or a church or whatever, we want to encourage you find those people as Nick and Ruth found those people long after um, her parents had, had passed. Uh, find that support structure. Find those people that will bless you, pray for you, send you out um, in your family, in your church, because I, I, hopefully over this last hour, people have, have realized you just can't overstate the importance of those people and those figures in your life blessing you to do what God has commanded you to do. It's vital. Uh, it's a lifeline. And for many people, unfortunately, we've seen they don't survive on the mission field if they don't have that support structure at home. We want you to find that um, and be blessed by those who are sending you. So, Nick, thank you so much for your time. I know there's a lot for people to chew on and to walk through in this episode, but uh, there is a lot of really, really good stuff. And I pray that it uh, really encourages people who are, are on the field or maybe you're thinking about going and especially if you're a parent or grandparent listening to this, uh, how can God use you to bless those uh, that he wants to send uh, out of your family? All right, Nick, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Witness and Persecution with Nick and Ruth Ripken. I've been your host, Anthony Ball. Uh, until next time, we pray that you find that blessing that God uh, wants to send you across the street and across the oceans. We'll be with you next time.